helping you make sense of life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 weekdays on Vision Christian Radio. This podcast is made available by Vision Christian Media. Thanks to the generosity of our supporters. Your donation today means great podcasts like this remain available to help people look to God daily. Please make your donation today at vision.org.au. What trajectory is your life presently on? Is your life on a trajectory toward God? Hi, and welcome to Today with Jeff Vines. Today, Pastor Jeff speaks to us about the price paid by Jesus challenging us to think about what direction our lives are taking and asking us, are we moving towards Christ or are we focused on making it big in this life? But are you moving toward God or are you being sucked back by the vortex of the things of the world? This is Today with Jeff Vines. Mark chapter 14, Mark 14, verse 60. We're going to get there just in a few moments. Two questions I want to start out with. They're directly related, although at first appearance they may not seem to be. But two questions we have to ask as it kind of sets the stage for where we're going to go in the book of Mark. We're almost completed the book of Mark, and then we've gone the whole way through. It's been a great journey. First question, do you think it's possible to believe something all of your life and really believe that it's the truth only to discover that what you believe does not conform with reality. Is it possible to believe that you know, this is the way it is and then later in life to discover, man, I was wrong all along. Now, if you doubt that, American Idol should remove all doubt. <laughs> because when some of these guys stand up to sing because their mommy told them they had talent, they've really believed it all of their lives. I mean, where are their friends? Where's the guy that will come and say to you, dude, don't go try out for American Idol. You will embarrass yourself. You can't sing. I know we told you that you can. I know that your mom told you that you can, but you can't sing, dude. You got no talent. You know, wouldn't you want your friend to tell you that before you embarrass yourself on national television? Uh, I've got a golfing buddy I play golf with back in Tennessee. Amazing guy. He is the eternal optimist. You know, he'll hit his ball behind a tree, and so he's got to hit his ball over the tree, big, high, tall tree, curve it, carve it around left to right, land it on the green softly, and he'll look over at me and say, Jeff, watch this. I'm going to take this golf ball. I'm going to hit it 100 feet in the air. I'm going to carve it around left to right. It's going to land on the green, and I'm going to make birdie. Now, I say to him, dude, I've been playing golf with you for 20 years. I've never seen you hit the ball 20 feet off the ground. There's no way you're going to get over that tree. But you look at him, he believes. He believes, then he hits it right in the middle of the tree. I mean, it's possible to believe with all your heart something that you find out just isn't true. Now, no one's immune to this because I've shared my story about when I walked into Tennessee Tech University. I was a small college All-American as a basketball player. So my mommy told me I was the greatest thing since Magic Johnson. I believed her. And I walked into this NBA farm team tryout and it took me all of 10 minutes to realize I wasn't, it's not that I wasn't good. I wasn't even mediocre. And that's a, that's a harsh reality. The Bible calls that living in darkness. You think you're in the light, but you're totally dark. Second question, and it's related and it's important. And everybody in this room has got to answer it before you walk out of here. What trajectory is your life presently on? 
Are you moving with your passions and your habits, the things you watch, the places you go, the things you do? Is your life on a trajectory toward God? Are you moving toward God? Nobody's perfect, I know, I know. But are you moving toward God or are you being sucked back by the vortex of the things of the world? So that your primary passions and your goals and objectives do not reflect upward mobility toward Christ, but you're more at home here. Can you believe something all your life, find out that you're wrong? Is the trajectory of your life moving toward Christ or away? As you come to the end of the book of Mark, Mark puts these two questions side by side and forces the reader to answer them. Now, last week we left Jesus in the garden and we learned a valuable lesson and I want to repeat it and then go on to the trial and crucifixion. When Jesus was in the garden, we learned that it is possible to be in the absolute worst place of your life and still be in the center of the will of God. The cross. And the only way you're going to be able to make it through is if you pay close attention to the manner in which Jesus identified God as Father. He's your daddy and my daddy. And because we know he has goodwill and intentions for his children, even when things make no sense at all, we can go forward. And the disciples must have looked up at the cross and think this makes no sense. Our Messiah is dying. And yet later on, they would have realized that was God's most majestic and perfect work in humanity the atonement for the sins of the world. It is possible to be in the worst possible darkness of your life and still be right where Christ wants you. Now we move on and I want you to think about Jesus for a moment now. Look what we've learned in the book of Mark. What is there about Jesus not to like? I mean, the guy is extremely compassionate. He forgives people that no one else will forgive. Mercy. He raises little girls from the dead. The lame walk and the blind see. This is a good guy all around. And yet the religious leaders, the religious people who think they're in the light want to kill him. And so they arrest him and bring false accusations. And the trial begins in verse 60. The high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now look up and notice every time Jesus has been asked this question, are you the one? Are you the Messiah? Are you the anointed one? Are you the one that's going to restore Israel to its place of prominence? Jesus either avoided the question or he turned the question back on the questioner. But this time in the trial, he says, you got it right, boys. That's exactly who I am. And I'll go one better. You're going to see the Son of Man, Daniel 7, sitting at the right hand of the Father. He quotes two Old Testament passages, Daniel and Psalm. And the reason he does that is these two passages talk about the Messiah. Now think about this. He's in a courtroom and people are judging him. And he quotes the two Old Testament passages where the Messiah comes as judge over all the world. You with me? 
Tim Keller in his book, King's Cross, on which this series is based, says, Jesus, by saying this, is deliberately forcing us to see the paradox. There's been an enormous reversal. He is judge over the entire world, being judged by the world. He should be in the judgment seat, and we should be in the dock, in chains. Everything is turned upside down. Ever had to confront somebody that's performed some injustice act or impropriety? Basically, you have one of two ways to respond when somebody confronts you, right? One, you can respond in pride and arrogance or in humility and repentance. If you respond in humility and repentance, you say, you're right. I did those things. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. I'm going to do better. Or you can say, who do you think you are to confront me with anything and to hold me accountable? That's exactly what the Jewish leaders do in response to Jesus' quotation of these two Old Testament passages. Who are you, Jesus, to judge us? We're the religious leaders around here. If any judging is going to happen, it'll be done by us. They're so angry. They're so filled with rage. Look what they do. The high priest, the Bible says, tore his clothes. You ever been so mad at somebody you wanted to tear your clothes? Or maybe tear their clothes? Why do you need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. And then at that point, the trial deteriorates and becomes more like a riot. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. So imagine you're in a courtroom and the judge and the jury are so angry that the one who's accused, the judge jumps over the bench And the jurors jump over the chairs and start beating and spitting and abusing the one who's on trial. Now, the reason this is so rare is because most of our modern day law practices are derived from first century Jewish Hebrew culture of trials. Do you know that? Because they were impeccable in their methodology, but not here. They're angry and they just jump out of their chairs and start abusing Jesus. Thanks for joining us on Today with Jeff Vines. The message is called The Price Paid. Let's continue with Pastor Jeff. I had a friend in New Zealand when we lived there who hated Christians. Ever, ever met anybody who hate, just hates Christians? And I finally said, let's go out for some coffee and let's talk about, make sure that I understand why you, why you hate Christians. And we talked for a couple of hours. I couldn't get anything out of him. Finally, I said, dude, tell me, just shoot straight with me. Well, why do you hate Christians? And he said this, because I don't want anybody to tell me how to live. Power and control, power and control. And we forget that if Jesus' message about grace is true, the religious leaders lose power and control. They lose their place of prominence in the temple. No more manipulating the people. No more power over the people. You don't need a priest anymore to approach God because Jesus is your high priest. And because what he does on the cross, we can all enter in now. We don't need a pastor. We don't need a priest. We just got to go by faith to God. And because of what Christ did, religion is dead. It's no longer a system about what I have to do. It's what's been done through Christ on the cross that all may enter if you walk in by faith. The religious leaders know this. Now, here's the irony. The irony is the religious leaders are like the Blues Brothers. They think they're on a mission from God. They think they're on God's side. They think they're in the light. They think they're representing God by killing this character. In fact, the only thing more intense than their hatred for Jesus is their regret that they don't have the power to kill him. Only the Roman procurator could kill someone who's accused of treason. So they have to trump up some charges. And so they say, well, 
He's committed blasphemy. Well, Pilate doesn't care anything about blasphemy. He doesn't care anything about the Hebrew God or anything else. So they change it and they say, well, he said that we should not pay taxes to Caesar. Well, if you've read the gospel of Mark, you'll know Jesus didn't say that at all. He said, give to Caesar what is Caesar, give to God's what is God's in hopes that somebody would say, what is God's? And Jesus would say, you are God's, give yourself to God. That didn't work either. So they said, well, he claimed to be a king. So they send him to Pilate for the second interview. And Pilate's first question is, according to Mark 15 too, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus responds by saying, yes, it is as you, emphasis is on you, say. That's Jesus' way of saying, Pilate, come on now. You know that even though I might have made the claim to be king of the Jews, they're twisting and turning it around to mean something it does not. Pilate, you know I'm not a revolutionary. You know my disciples don't carry swords and spears. Ours is a kingdom of love. This frustrates Pilate. So we ask him another question. He says, aren't you going to answer all these accusations? See how many things they are accusing you of? But still, Jesus made no reply and Pilate was amazed. Now, somebody might say, why didn't Jesus defend himself? If you ever read the gospels, you think, you know, why does Jesus just sit there and say nothing? It was an illegal trial. Pilate's questions could have been answered. Why does Jesus say nothing? And you might say, well, I've read the Old Testament. It was because it was prophesied that he would be led like a lamb to the slaughter. He would not open his mouth. But there's something else here. He said nothing to Pilate because there was nothing good in Pilate to which he could appeal. Because Pilate is also about power and authority. Let me just give you a little hint. When you're talking to someone about your faith and that person is not looking for truth but just wants to argue, you're wasting your time. You're wasting your time. Jesus knew that Pilate's primary concern was his power. As long as Pilate kept the peace, then he would be honored and promoted by Rome. If he did not keep the peace, not only would he lose his job, but more than likely he would lose his life. So he's not interested in whether or not Jesus is right. He's not interested in truth and falsehood. He's interested in keeping the peace. So Jesus doesn't appeal to him. Pilate stalls for time, reflects on what's happening. And when he realizes the persistence of the Jews, he plays his trump card. He says, wait a minute, this is a special time of year. And in this time of year, it is a custom that we release a prisoner to you. I'll release Jesus. And they say what? No, give us Barabbas, which must have been a shock to Pilate because Barabbas was a murderer, an insurrectionist. Never has there been a greater comparison between two people. Jesus was a life giver. Barabbas was a life taker. And so Pilate responds by saying this. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Notice they don't give an answer. They just say, crucify him. He who shouts loudest usually wins the debate, right? Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Now everybody look up and listen to me. The pain and torture that Jesus encountered in these next hours, unfathomable to most of us. I think it was Easter 2009 that I went verse by verse, detail by detail, what the Christ would have suffered because he loves you. Mark is a shorter gospel, 16 chapters. And Mark is not going to talk about so many of the details like Matthew and Luke do. Because he has something else that he wants to point out. 
And it's what you've got to grapple with before you leave. But I don't want to do the text injustice either. I want to tell you just a little bit about and help you understand what it is Jesus is about to go through. Because you do realize he's going to be beaten from the garden to the trial. He's going to be beaten at the trial. He's going to be beaten from the trial to Pilate. He's going to be beaten from Pilate back to the trial and to Herod and back to Pilate. For the next 24 hours, he's going to be physically and verbally abused. As a matter of fact, Luke records in Luke 23 that the chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. So before Jesus even gets to Pilate, Herod's men of war, I underline soldiers in that verse because it's a reference to Herod's men of war. There were 600 of them and those 600 men were experts in torture and they were responsible for taking Jesus back and forth. And all along the way, the Bible tells us that they slapped him with open hand and then they slapped him and beat him with closed fist. They put a blindfold on him so that he wouldn't see the punches coming, which in some way is more, more damaging because you can't brace yourself. He would have been knocked out unconscious many times, come to again, then the torture starts again. And this would have happened after the experience in the garden of hematidrosis, which is an actual medical condition where blood seeps into the sweat glands. And it happens in only in extreme anxiety and it makes the skin sensitive to touch for 24 hours afterward. Now, after all of this happens, they take him and they scourge him. The Greek word is fragalao, uh, which is a word that means open bowel. And it's more of a description of what happens during a scourging than the scourging itself. They will tie Jesus down to a post that's jutting out of the ground about three and a half feet. And the Roman lictor will lay the first type of whip, remember, with seven leather strands ending in leather sockets that will contain metal balls that are designed to bruise the back severely. With every blow, you'll lose your breath. And the Roman lictor would lay that whip time and time and time again. And then after the bruise of the back, after the back is bruised sufficiently, he will take the second whip, which is uh, containing chips of bone that are designed at the end of those long leather strands in those sockets to stick to the back and then extract flesh as it's pulled away. According to Matthew, Luke, uh, Jesus is scourged more than once. It's called halfway death because a lot of people die before they ever reach the cross. And Jesus does this willingly, although he could have called 10,000 angels. He does it willingly because he loves you and he loves me. Now, what's interesting about the cross, the Romans had perfected crucifixion. That is, they could keep you alive if you didn't make it to the cross past the scourging for as long as possible so the whole world could see, or the known world, what happens when you betray Rome. But ultimately, you die from asphyxiation, suffocation. Because what happens when they nail you, by the way, when they, when they ask Jesus to carry his cross, most of the time we think it's a, a cross like we'd see in the passion. And, but the reality is Jesus doesn't carry this section right here. That's on the hill of Golgotha already. And it'll be in place, ready to be hoisted up. When this part, the patabulum, which weighs about 200 pounds, will be hoisted on this segment and then they'll be They'll, they'll be roped up together and then drop finally into the ground. So Jesus will carry the patabulum, 200 pounds, if he makes it. And one passage tells us he had to have somebody help him carry the cross. When he gets to Golgotha, they will lay him down flat on this part that's already in place. 
and they will drive five to seven inch spikes, not into his hand, but into his wrists. And it will sever what is called the median nerve. Now, if you want to know how painful that is, just take a pair of pliers sometimes and squeeze that part of your elbow right there that sends you into a frenzy when you bump it and just hold it there. It's the most painful thing you could ever experience. There's an English word derived out of the cross, excruciating. It means out of the cross. The pain was so great, there wasn't a word to describe it. So we just said out of the cross. When Jesus is hanging on the cross, he's placed in an inhale position. So you've got air in, but the way your body's positioned, you cannot exhale to get your next breath. In order to get your next breath, you have to take your feet and push yourself up on the cross to release the pressure on the diaphragm and the lungs, and then you're able to exhale and go back downward and to get your next breath. And every time he does this, of course, the crown of thorns push into his skull, his back that has been scourged runs up and down, the splintered wood of the old wooden cross. And the pain is just endless. Six hours. Finally, when Jesus doesn't have the energy or the strength to push himself up, he dies by suffocation. And he knows it's near because he knows he doesn't have the strength to push himself up on the cross so he's able to utter his last words into your hands, Father, I commend my spirit. And before I move on to Mark, I just want everybody in this room to know, no matter if you're on your journey or you've been a Christian for a long time, it's possible to read the Gospels and lose their effect because of familiarity. Make sure you understand what Jesus did so that you and I could come into the presence of the Father. And he did it willingly. The ultimate man of power refused to use his power and darkness fell so that you could come into the presence of God. This is Today with Jeff Vines, and we're only halfway through The Price Paid. Hope you can join us next time to hear the rest of this message about Jesus' sacrifice. To hear more right now, you can head to the Vision Christian Store. That's visionstore.org.au and click on Jeff Vines. Today with Jeff Vines. Just another way vision is connecting faith to your life. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au. 